0: Welcome back to the Mentors. This is one of your co-hosts, Sergey, and Vadim is not able to be here today for this recording. But we are excited to bring to you this interview that we landed with the founder and CEO of Thinkful, Daryl Silver. Daryl is a founder that we've been following for a long time. The company that he started Thinkful is now a 900-person company that was acquired by Chegg just this past year. Um, he was able to build this company from the ground up, and he shared the story with us exactly of how he built that business He was an engineer by trade, and he actually had another company that he started called Perpetually that he successfully sold as well before he even started Thinkful. And so we decided to separate this hour long interview into two parts where you're gonna get to hear the origin story of Daryl, of how he got into building his own startups. You're gonna learn things like how he leveraged advisors early on to learn things that he really didn't know how to do to be able to build his first company and he talks in detail about the strategy he employed to successfully complete the acquisition of that company including some details that you don't really get to hear much about like how does an actual negotiation happen when you sell a company he breaks that down in detail and we're going to share with you that part of the story this week next week we're going to get into the story of how he built that company and into one of the most successful coding boot camps in the country. It was one of the first ones, one of the originals, that then ended up expanding into many more disciplines outside of coding. He used the model to be able to teach people a lot of different types of skills, and he ended up taking that company to a successful acquisition eight years later. Daryl was so open with his information, with uh, the details of how he built the businesses. That We really appreciate the time, and we're excited for you to hear this interview. Of course, in the social distancing era, we did this interview over Zoom, so it's not going to be as great quality, audio quality, as, as our interviews are when they're in person, but the conversation is well worth it to listen to. So please enjoy part one of our conversation with Daryl Silver of Thinkful. Hello, and welcome back to The Mentors. Mentors. This is Vadim and Sergey. And you're listening to a show where we tell stories of ordinary people that became extraordinary entrepreneurs, leaders, and creators despite lack of experience, money, or connections. And today on the show, we have Daryl Silver, who's co-founder and CEO of Thinkful. And he has quite an incredible background because, Daryl, you started off um, more on the engineering side. I mean, I think art history as well, but also engineering. And you transitioned to becoming a founder and CEO and clearly figured it out because uh, Thankful was recently acquired by Check for $100 million before you ran a company called Perpetually, which was sold in 2012, I believe, to Dell. So clearly an entrepreneur through and through that was able to figure out how to actually create impact to the world. Thank you so much for joining us on the show, Daryl.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Of course, Daryl. This is also a special interview for us because we actually moved to New York in in 2012, and it, it was around the time that Thinkful was starting, and we started hearing about Thinkful around that time. We've been following you since then, so uh, it, it was really awesome to see the great outcome for Thankful and your team, and, and great to have you on the show here as well. We were uh, supposed to have this conversation in person in front of a live audience at South by Southwest EDU a couple of weeks ago. Unfortunately, the conference was canceled, but we're, we're grateful that you still decided to come on the show. But the topic that we were going to talk about is how entrepreneurs learn new skills, And that's the way that I wanted to kick off this episode. Um, I wanted to learn uh, and have you tell our audience a little bit about some of the skills that you picked up in your work before you started your first company perpetually uh, that you think were most helpful for you as a founder later on. Can you talk a little bit about that early experience?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think for me, the number one skill and, and in a lot of ways, privilege was having the risk tolerance and ability to take risks on things that seemed a little bit irrational at the time. So I left a job in, in the summer of 2008 right before the financial crisis. And so here we are 12 Mm. years later living through a a somewhat analogous experience and that was a big risk to take at the time. But I said to myself, look, I'm I'm at an age and a life obligation where I have the opportunity to do that. And and it's not going to get any easier. Uh, and, it, and it's a pretty privileged spot to be able to do that in the first place. And so, like, let's just jump right in. And so the, the, the number one thing was just being able to take risk um, and, and to believe that you were going to see the other side.
0: So, okay, so I actually 100% agree with you that the ability and flexibility to, to be able to even take risks, like you said, privilege, uh, you know, an abundance mindset—something some, that you know we were lucky to maybe have in our families, or grow up with, or have the education to afford us—is is one of those big things. So, so was it something that you you know saw evidence of in in your day to day life, like in your work or in other ways that you knew you had that risk tolerance, or was starting that company kind of that first the big risk that you took, a career risk that you took? Um, well, there's a few factors, but the first one really
1: is that I knew I could still pay rent. I knew I could still uh, eat and I knew I could still live a sort of, I mean, a simpler life, but but, but a pretty normal life, nothing too dramatic. Um, And that's easy for people to skip over because you don't recognize that it's not available to to, to most people. And obviously with Thinkful, I've now seen that that's a very sort of baseline need. And I think that can be flexible, especially in your twenties or before your before you're married or before you have kids or maybe after you're married, but while you have a a significant other that's going to support you. So, so having that opportunity just to be able to take that risk in the first place, let alone whether your risk tolerance is high. Um, But just the the number one thing is being able to remove income for a short period or limit income or change your income from full-time to freelance or full-time to part-time and still, and still make ends meet. The second thing, you know, honestly, that's such a big thing. Let's let somebody return to your question. What was your question originally? There are there are a lot of other factors. I just don't want. I find often people skip past that first one, um, and and that's a very important one.
0: You know, I was wondering if you if you had any indications even before that that you had somewhat of an appetite or an ability to stomach risk. But you know, I think. Oh yeah,
1: no, absolutely, uh, absolutely. So 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 the the, the second factor is, um, I kind of enjoy, for better or worse, going down. Paths or trying to learn skills or th- and really throwing myself into learning skills that I really am underqualified for. Hmm. So I really, really enjoy. A lot of people enjoy getting, becoming the best in the world at a particular skill set. And what I really enjoy is going from zero to sixty on a, on a skill set. So really, saying, I'll give you a great example. My first company, uh, we sold we sold software to Apple and, and IBM and 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 Abbott Labs and a couple other Fortune one hundred names and. You know that's of big enterprise sales and you have to you travel to the location and you get to know the teams over months and you figure out who the who the entrepreneurs are and who the blockers are and all these things and then after it all uh and after we sold and and, and after i was working it for a little while i said I, I i met my now co-founder and and the direction we started talking about was entirely different we said we said this is going to be a, a consumer product we're going to go direct to consumer um and this is in 2012 and so it's like for me, I said, gee, I've never done anything about direct-to-consumer. I don't know the first thing about marketing or PR or or analytics for, for sales funnels at that kind of at, at, a, at the scale of direct-to-consumer versus enterprise, which have very different shapes. But that's intriguing. And and that instinct to go really down the road of something you don't know and just throw yourself into a place where you have responsibility for it without knowing how um, is, a, is a place where entrepreneurs truly thrive. And, and, and that's where I've been... Um, lucky enough to find those spots and then get to sixty. And then of course, when you get this, once you once you build the basic skills and you get to sixty, you get to zero to sixty. You gotta you gotta hire someone smarter than you, and and, and that's the that's the journey as the company grows. Hmm.
0: Interesting. Let's stay with the example of enterprise sales for a second. You were probably pretty green. I'm assuming you didn't have much sales experience. What did you do? to get comfortable with that whole process before you hired it out and, and put together a direct sales force and the like. Did you have any mentors, anybody that you could go to to help you out and figure out how to navigate a long sales cycle? I mean, what were the steps that you took? Did you just kind of throw yourself in there?
1: Yes, that's a great question. So there's there's two big things. Number one, I find, and this does not work for everybody, but, it, but, but this is what I now hire for, and it's what I've seen in, in my experience and what works well for a lot of entrepreneurs is, the best way to learn something is to take responsibility for it. Um, And so I tend to look for people that uh, when you throw them in, not necessarily the deep end, but you throw them in an end of the pool that they're uh, just beyond their comfort zone, they will, and and you make them responsible for something like closing a big deal in this example for enterprise sales, they will become resourceful. They will ask good questions. They will focus on the right problems and then they'll figure it out. Um, now, you have to make sure not to throw them in too deep into a pool because they'll just drown. But, but you, you got to throw them into the right spot. And that's what I found works for me. And, and uh, I've seen mostly success with that strategy. When I've seen failure for me doing that to myself, it, it, it's uh, pretty painful. But, but you learn at about 100 times the speed as any other type of learning. So, so really just throwing yourself in and taking responsibility for something and you, gotta, and you gotta trust yourself to figure it out. And when you don't figure it out, you learn that you should pull back to a shallower end, but, and that's, that's just part of the journey. But over and over, what you find is it helps people learn much faster. The second thing, and you hit on it exactly, is advisors or mentors. One of the things I didn't do in 2007, 2008, well, I will say one of the things I did before moving to tech was I started, I started just meeting more people who worked in tech, who worked at very small companies, who were freelance and just hanging out in, the, in New York. And at that time in New York, there was a lot of, a lot of burgeoning culture for that. Uh, coworking was pre-coworking. There was jelly. There was, there was uh, hot desks. There was a, a few things. Um, and so you just meet people that you could identify with and understand, and you could listen to what their, what their challenges were, and you could commiserate and get comfort in the challenges and struggles they were all having and have them together, which is much better. But really putting the time and effort into finding mentors and advisors who are one stage more mature in the, in the things you have responsibility for is invaluable. And this is a thing that I remember having arguments about whether it was worth having another advisor, uh, whether it was worth having um, more exec coaching or another, another person who, another investor who had done it before, sort of like putting in a small amount of money to to, to help and and every single time I would win those arguments because I would say I have yet to find the efficient ceiling of how of that kind of advice. I, I've yet to find a situation where more good advice from someone who's done it before, a different style of solving a problem, or just being able to be very tactical with you about how to navigate an internal politics of your sales cycle or or something else. I've never found that to be that time spent on the phone with that advisor to be wasted. And so the time spent finding those people, um, which is hard. It's like hiring. You have to find someone at the right stage in their career for you at that time. Uh, it always pays off many, many, many fold. Hmm.
0: Well, I can definitely see how it would def- not be a waste of time to to connect with them. But how do you know that the device is always good? Even if it's from someone that's very experienced, how do you know if you should follow it, especially when you have conflicting advice from multiple intelligent people or experienced people?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. And And one of the things I find that I'm always... Um, taken aback by is there's no such thing as the right advice. There's the right advice for you, for your style and the right advice for that moment and, or, or that period or that deal. And so um, what I tend to do is I almost, I listen to what they're telling me to do. And then I say, could I imagine myself honestly doing that with the counterparty? So let's say let's, let's make it a little, um, let's make it a little more concrete. So let's say it's um, how to negotiate better terms on some contract. Often those kinds of contracts with a vendor or if you're the vendor with a, with a customer or if you're fundraising or if you're selling uh, in an M&A process, which we just went through often, and this is really, really surprising people, but most of the time, not often, but most of the time those kinds of negotiations come down to the trust you've built and the personalities in the room. Um, the underlying economics kind of are what they are. Uh, and, and your job is to find a way to operate as a, as a entrepreneur, as a, as a, as the leader to, be honest to yourself so that you can build trust across the table and build, understand what that other side is really after. And so the advice I often get, and this is often the source of conflicts. So smart people give you two opposite opposing advice. The, the, the answer tends to be that, that one of them is gonna sound true to who you are as an operator and you have to trust yourself. And the other one is gonna sound correct for them, but not necessarily for you. That's a really enormous amount of, uh, of, of, how, to, of how I navigate um, good advice that's conflicting there are multiple paths to success and and different ones work for different people and you have to figure out what you, what works for you. You have to, you have to listen to what feels honest to you.
0: Hmm. I like that. That almost actually, I think alludes to intuition in some way, which intuition is a combination of your previous experiences, your morals and everything uh, and, and, and helps you make your decisions. So it's not something that should be ignored.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's, there's other ways of filtering the world as well. So, so you can, often what I find is advisors are time strapped. And so, They won't go into the important – you as an entrepreneur have a hard time articulating what matters because it's new terrain for you. You don't know what matters most. That's sort of what makes it new. And so an advisor that understands what questions to ask or spends the time uh, will really help you ask the right question, and that asking the right question turned out to be a big part of the value. So an advisor that doesn't and just tells you the answer tends to be wrong, not because they're wrong, but because they're wrong for you.
0: Yeah, you're absolutely right. We do a lot of coaching with entrepreneurs as well. And nothing rubs us the wrong way more than hearing another coach or advisor just try to shove advice down an entrepreneur's throat. Uh, You have to actually figure out what matters to them. And the only way to do that, it's kind of like a sales process. The only way to do that is to actually discover uh, their pain, discover their issues, their gaps, and then hopefully give some suggestions that can point them in the right direction. Uh, but if you're just giving advice, that's counterproductive usually. Yep, exactly. So Daryl, I want to get to the thinkful side of the story. But one of the things I read in uh, on, on your personal blog when you were talking about acquisitions and how acquisitions come about was that uh, it's it's a little bit different than maybe what most entrepreneurs assume. Uh, so can you can you talk a little bit about how that acquisition of your first company came about? Uh, and then uh, just so we can learn about, you know, how are these things? How do these things ever happen? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And that's that's a that's a great entrepreneurship story. And I think
1: one of the things you find that that idea of throwing yourself in the in the deep end and and figuring it out, it basically seems like failure the whole time. And practically mm-hmm. speaking, that's what it is you fail, you fail, you fail, and you fail a little bit less at the old tasks and that's what makes them old. And then you move on to something new uh, and you fail all over again. Hmm. That experience was absolutely the sale experience at perpetually. So, so, um, into th- started the thing in 2009, um, and then, uh, raised a small amount of money, not much, We had some great customers, uh, generating solid cash, generating about, um, it was pretty small, frankly, but it was, but it was nice. And it was, it was, it was nice for, for, for the small team. We had a team about five. And in, uh, I think November of 2011, I, I didn't see a path to growing sales, to getting cash flow positive, and didn't see a path to raising money and laid off most of the team laid off three of the five of us, meaning there were two of us left wow. and that was it. And I was like, I sent, I, I worked with the last employee, last, last basically co-founder. Um, And he wasn't all that excited about, about this sort of ambiguous future. And he was on his way out and he was professional about it. And that was it. It was kind of just me, complete failure. And I sent a letter around to every, to my whole network and to our investors and said, look, this is not working. We have a few great customers. We have a great product. That's pretty special. um, But, but it's not working. We couldn't quite find the product market fit we needed. And we were in the desert. Is one way is how VCs often think about that. You're between that seed round and the next round, or it can happen between any round. Um, And that was it company failed. And I I went home and and sulked and it was painful. And then in response to that letter, I ended up with, and this is a long story short, I ended up with two acquisition interests um, and was able to run that, run a, like do what you're supposed to do is run a process to actually, to actually sell the company because the assets we had built were strong. The customers we had built were, were proof of that. The revenue was real uh, and, and the skills I had uh, honed were, were pretty powerful, even though it was really just me left running the company. Um, and we sold and we sold for, I, I have this incredible experience where I was traveling around. I went to Portland to talk to the subsidiary of, of Dell. That was, that was one of the two interested parties. Um, this company smart, which is a great company, founder led and, and, and 12 years old. And, um, was awesome and, and still is. And, um, uh, I, I went to Portland, Oregon to talk to the, to talk to the team there. No idea what I was in for. didn't prep for it. Uh, had a meeting with every sea level a big room of 15 people presenting our entire infrastructure and our strategy and our plan and walking through everything, did a whiteboard around three sides to the whole room over three hours. Uh, and I just knew it so intimately um, and was able to do that on demand at that stage after three years of working on this 70 hours a week, every week. Um, and then they were pretty excited. They were, they were sold on the, on the principle. They were, they were comfortable with the terms, which we were negotiating back and forth with our two offers. And which again, like literally in response to emails that I sent people saying this company is shuttering, I got, these, I got these interested parties just, just from the network that I had built over the prior four years. Um, and so I'm on the way from the airport, I'm on the way from the Marsh office in Portland, and at Portland Airport PDX, going down one of those walking escalators, and I get a call from one of my investors. And the investor says, um, I'll never forget this experience. I remember, I've been back at that airport, and I remember the escalator. Um, uh, investor says, look, I, I'm I'm trying to figure out this investment we made. I'm trying to figure out if it's a loss I should take in... 2011 or if it'll hit in 2012 um, because I'm just going to write it off. I don't know which tax you to write it off in. And I said, no, 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 <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> you're about to get all your money back and more. You're about to make real money on this deal. Um, I, I need, I need another eight weeks for diligence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and honestly, that and that's what happened. And it was, it was, it was shocking. And so, so the process selling perpetually was one of utter failure and then turned around because of network, because I had spent four years in, in New York tech, um, getting to know people and understanding the understanding the market I was trying to find find product market fit within um, and it led to and and we built real value and it led to real interest and then it was managing those relationships through through uh, through the transaction
0: now that that's an amazing story and and so that acquirer you ended up being introduced to was that the first time you ever met that that company through that introduction great question
1: it wasn't actually and this goes straight
0: to the networking point I I had the introduction
1: to the founder and CEO in I think June or March of the prior year. Um, and that's a very, very standard, very, very standard story is that you, you just get to know the people and the dynamics and the, and the things that are interesting in your market. And you have to do that day in day out and it's it's slow burn, right? One intro per month or something. It adds Mm -hmm. it up quite quick. So I'd gotten an intro to that founder when he was in New York in again, earlier the prior year. And I didn't know it at the time, but at that time they were trying to figure out how to do the archiving, potentially as an archiving company, try to do the archiving we were trying to, we were working out, Mm -hmm. but they didn't have any money to go buying companies. They didn't have a capacity at that moment. And I didn't know any of that, but I just knew that this was somebody who was working in the world in which we were trying to find product market fit. I had the mentality of you have to meet the people that are driving or reacting to your market to learn from where it's going. You have to go to the conferences and have the booths and feel like an idiot, be the small fish and all that stuff. Right. Um, I met that founder in March or, or uh, about then in the prior year. And then when I, when I got reintroduced after sending that letter, it, it was easy. It was that person knew me, knew what we were doing, understood their, their, financial had, their financials had changed so that they could start doing this kind of deal. Um, and it was just a very natural move at that moment.
0: Yeah, that, that's amazing. It sounds like there was some trust already developed there as you guys interacted, you know, being in the industry together. I have to ask... Well, honestly, you know, the, way to, the way to think about that, and this is true for a lot of stages of startup development and all stages of business
1: is, is people invest in lines, not dots. That's the yeah. best phrase I've heard for this. Meaning if you meet somebody, they tell you a bunch of stuff, and they tell you about what they're going to do, and then that's it. Then it's like, okay, well, you know, maybe that'll work out or maybe it won't. If I meet you, if I meet somebody and I tell them what I'm going to do, uh, and I tell them what I've done, and then six months later, we catch up again, either deliberately or by accident. And I say, "Yeah, we did those those things I told you about. We did them, mm-hmm. um, and we delivered. And now we're doing this next thing." Then they've got a track record they can build on, and that's that goes from from the, if you think about it as a graph of progress. That's a it goes from the people invest in lines, not dots, and they yeah. they want to invest in someone who has a trajectory of of what they say they're going to do. And it's okay if you change your course. Man, we said we were going to do X. And then we learned it was a complete waste of time, and we, we pivoted to why, and now why is really exciting? It's still a line. It's still a reaction. It's still a way to understand where someone is going by based on where, they're, where they've been over the last period. So yeah, absolutely, it's about that trust is true, and it's a lot about showing uh, progress over time.
0: Exactly, and that's that's true both for your interactions with uh, acquirers as it is with with investors. Whether you're doing your pre-seed round or your Series D, and employees and people yeah. I
1: people I meet that I, that we talk about hiring and people that we want to fill senior positions. These are these are you're, you're investing in the you're investing in the things they are going to deliver over time and their growth and, and the risks they can take, and you want to see that progress over time
0: absolutely and before i move on to, to Thinkful, i do have to ask you know because i know that our listeners are are curious about this you uh, you were able to turn around this potential failure story into a win how do you even begin to to know how much to ask for in an acquisition like this where it seems like you have little leverage um how did you know how much value the company had and and what you could actually get for it Oh, very. Uh, it, it's a great comp-
1: question. It's a very complex question. I, yeah. let, let me give the let me give a starting point. Is the first thing that if you have one interested party, the very first thing you should do is find a second. Yep. The second, the, the very next thing you should do is find a third, and then the very next thing you should do is work on each of them independently to make each of them your first preference, your mm. your top preference. Uh, and that's 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 a message I deliver all the time. The if you're in a business that is cash flow break even and you don't need money and you have, you, you don't have a ticking clock, like you're not losing money every month. That is your, that is an incredibly strong place to be. And, uh, it means that when you look for that second option of, Hey, like, that's a great path I want to go. I'm, I'm, I want to spend the next two to 10 years working on that. Um, great. That's path one. What is path two? If you're interested in an exit, if you're interested in some other kind of partnership, work on that second path, but know that your first path is your first choice. Yeah. And as soon as you find that second path, you got to find a third path and then you have to start baking them off against each other. So the core of that message is, is to create options and options create value. By yeah. it's just like, um, the person I was talking to yesterday described it as almost dating. It, it, it's a little bit like that where you don't want to look desperate. Mm-hmm. You can't be desperate, but you, you create and destroy value by having or not having options. Um, and you can't, you can't, you can, you can create urgency with options. You can ask for a price. Um, uh, but the most important thing is to have options. If you have no options out, your value goes down and that's, I mean, it's fine. It's just the way it goes a lot of the time. Um, but your value goes up with options. Your value goes down without options. Um, that's the first step. The second step is to be very careful about signaling value. So you want, you, you basically, I mean, to simplify it down, you never want to tell someone the price that you want for your product, for your company. Very different than a sale. Mm-hmm. In a sale, you're selling to if you're selling a product. Then you want to tell the customer what the price is and what they're getting for it. You want to be clear and you want to make the choice simple for them. And you want to make the choice easy for them. Mm-hmm. In an acquisition, you want to understand you want, the, you want the acquirer to, to come at the question of the, of the value they should, of the amount they should pay from what the value is that they're going to get, and they know that a lot better than you. When you're selling to a customer, you know the value the customer is going to get better than them. When you're selling to a, a company, they, know the value they should know the value they're going to get more than you because they know their business better than you and they know their roadmap better than you. Um, uh, and so you, you really want to be careful about signaling price to the acquirer. Uh, um, and so you can tell them they can go off any numbers you want. You get to shape that story by looking at, you can say, here's our revenue. You can say, here's our bookings. You can say, here's our burn. You can focus on whatever metrics you want and that helps shape their perception of what their price should be. Mm -hmm. But you gotta be very careful. It's a big, big question. You gotta be very careful not to just, um, tell them the price you want because they'll take that as a ceiling. Um, and they'll also, and you'll never really know what their, what their, what the value is that they perceive. And they'll take that as uh, worse than just a ceiling. They'll take that as just a random number, and they'll say no to that number, and it puts yeah. you in a very puts you in a very bad.
0: I wonder if they teach this in MBA programs how to negotiate sale of your company. It sounds like it's something that uh, uh, that it's kind of a black box. I think for a lot of people,
1: it's it is a black box. And honestly, there's there's about uh, a, a, a hundred million websites that write about how to raise money. there's about zero that write about how to sell your company and it's a really big gap in the market and 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 everyone has everyone says it's this sort of every deal is different and all that stuff but it's but it's not really true there's a lot of commonality and 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 fundamentally um you're you're trying to find the right home for the asset you've built and for the team and any acquirer that you'll want to work with is is looking for a founder that thinks about it as not what they're selling, but what they're going to build together. And so that's about the team. That's about the asset. The price is just one of those components that goes into it. And the mentality you have of I am the shepherd of this incredible thing into the future. And I'm going to, I'm going to do it with you. uh, Rather than negotiate with you is the the better, the healthier you want to be in a trusting, you want to have a good, that idea that we talked about already of having advisors that are giving you, um, giving you advice that works for you. That's, that's very that's the same when you work with an acquirer. You wanna be building a rapport with that with that partner to build a better future together. And then price is gonna be part of that discussion.
0: This concludes part one of our conversation with Daryl about the early days of his founder career. Next week we're gonna share the second part of the episode where he talks about In detail about the early days of getting Thinkful off the ground, how he decided to go from a B2B company selling to businesses to a completely different type of business, business to consumer, B2C. And he's going to tell us exactly how he built that company to the successful venture that it is today, reaching thousands of students. And he's planning to do a lot more with that venture in the years to come now as part of Chegg. Of course, talks as well about the acquisition with Chegg and how that came about. Thank you so much for listening. And we're excited to have you back on Sunday for our five-minute pick-me-up. And hopefully you can tune in to part two next week on wednesday thanks so much and we'll see you next week